We don't need cultural validation. That's, that's part of what gets on my nerves here. We don't need the affirmation of secular elites. We don't need all of these, these different forms of validation. We have all the validation, all the resources, all the majesty, all the glory that we need. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, let me drop this line on you. Try this on for size. The culture war is over and the church lost. Agreed. Now, that statement, I haven't heard a lot of people say that, but I would say that a, just an objective perspective of looking around the world, no, let's say, let's make it US. That's where we're based. Um, that That needs to be said. And the reason it needs to be said is because we have to have a realistic analysis of where we're at before we move on to the next thing. So some of you will say, hey, wait a second, you can't say a line like that on a podcast that's about hope. No, actually I can, because my hope is not in winning a culture war. So let's stick a nail in that coffin and move on to the next thing. Um, that being said, I am deeply influenced or deeply interested in the church's influence and engagement with culture. Sure. So yeah. we're going to have to parse that out as we go forward here, lest any of us lose our minds. But I said that sentence, the cultural war is dead and the church is lost. And you said, absolutely. Tell me what you're, tell me, tell me why you say that's true. Um, and then we'll take it from there. Zero hesitation there. Well, before we go into that, let's ask a scary question. One that I, I don't often hear asked. So it's, a, it's frightening to look at one's, you know, it's frightening to think of a paradise or your version of a paradise or your version of heaven sometimes utopia might be a good thing yeah your version of utopia but i'm in the you know so i'm reading brave new world right now <laughs> and that is a picture of <laughs> to some minds an ideal society in the book right it's a it's a it's a culture where people are dominated not by brute force and power but they are basically defeated and overcome through pleasure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's there. There's some. There's a fair degree of plausibility to some of that world that Huxley is is bringing to mind there. But that said, Nathan, and that's so to bring up Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and then to ask this question <laughs> might be poisoning the well a little bit. But what would it look like if if the church won the culture war? Oh. That's what I want to know first before we get into this. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you see what you see why this oh. is going to make make people cringe. Yeah. Okay, so, well, so what, is, is, what would a culture look like? What what would happen? Yeah. Well, I so I yeah. So so we we have um, we have references to this in history, so we can look back historically at some of the the uh, deep run attempts here of the church doing that. You can look at. Um, Protestant versions of Europe, you can look at Catholic versions of Europe, you can look at Rome, you can look at Inquisitions and Crusades and all sorts of, um, by and large, historically, what has been meant by the church winning the culture war is that a theocracy is reinstated. And so you right. have a church that is powerful enough to be able to get the government to do what the church wants. And lest I we act like that is past tense, you know, you, you and I have talked about Surab Amari and some of the other um, young right. guns out there who, yeah. Yep. What, what's the, what's the name for them? Integralists. Integralist. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not an old and a dead idea. It has a 
ton to do with how you interpret the relationship between the Old and the New Testament and what Jesus's idea of cultural engagement was. So this is a deeply theological issue because I come from a strain where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Um, meaning that it's not that Jesus is disinterested, but that he sees his followers as being able to handle most political situations um, and that the form of government is not, there isn't a necessary form of government in order for you to be a Christian. So he mm -hmm. seemingly missed out like, as soon as you throw off the uh, Russians, then you can come follow me kind of thing. Um, so there's, there's a great beauty and fluidity to that. Now, as being citizens who are um, motivated by Christ ideals, I think we do have deep desires and drives for um, the value of individuals. You can't get away from that in the founding of our, um, our nations and the, the appeal to heaven. It's all very much there. Individual freedoms. Um, I think even we want to talk sometime about how does Christianity is Christianity a necessary prerequisite of the freedom of speech? Some ideas like, so it, it's very, very important, but those are all tactics of how we live, not how we rule. Right. And so that is the, the, the fundamental shift. I think that is needing to happen to say, a, what would it look like if we did win B could we do that without compromising seriously on the things Jesus taught us? C we're in a position where we haven't won. So D now would be a wonderful time to recalculate and say, what is our mission and what is it that we're actually trying to do? So that's the direction that I want to go a little bit with that. So Penny for your okay. thoughts. Yeah, no. And I know that this makes us squirm a little bit because yeah, we can look back to history. We can see the example of a theocracy for what it's worth. If we're speaking about the United States and I'll have some words of I think kind of gentle critique here. I, I don't think that most people who would self-identify as Christians want a theocracy. There are, there are a number who do, but most I think just want religious freedom. That's, mm -hmm. those are the terms. That's the, that's the phrase. Rhode I Island. Hear. I mean, that was the ideal, right? So we can look even at right. early colonial perspectives of how they should all go to get some, some idea of what our right. actual so they, they, itches are. Right. So they want religious freedom. You know, it was W.H. Auden who asked, what is your, you know, you should, you should talk about your version of what heaven would look like for you. And it is an instructive exercise. So what is your version of, I mean, again, I think have that, try that on as an imaginative exercise. What would your version of America look like if, if Christianity quote, won the culture war? Would it look like Mayberry? <laughs> Would it look like a, a more a more wholesome place? Would it look like HBO didn't put out the typical types of shows that it does? Just think think that through for a second. And then also ask yourself, what are the implications of living in a fallen world? Well, and, as well? and throw in there Jesus's statement of there will always be wars and rumors of war. The poor you always have with you. So, like, so as far as and like if our they hated Earth, me, they'll they hate you hate too. Hate Mark you 13, also. Yeah, Mark 13, 13, not many sermons on that. So I, I, I guess I, I only interrupt there to say that Jesus doesn't share your idealism. Yes, and I, and I think you're starting to get a hint, listeners, of why Nathan and I don't like the culture war concept to begin with, or the, the, really even the notion that, that we're engaged in some kind of major battle over the culture. 
it depends on how you parse this out. I mean, if we if we're talking about we want to exercise, we want to be faithful Christians and follow Christ to the utmost of our abilities, empowered by His Holy Spirit in community together as other Christians in our churches, then and and send out redemptive ripples again by God's grace. Listen to the alliteration there. Redemptive ripples. <laughs> redemptive ripples. Well, absolutely, yes. But if you mean exert some kind of real political force or some sort of of domination or some some form of control where we're basically using instrumental means to to spread Christianity, I think something has has gone wrong. I think something's becoming the the waters are be, are getting a little bit muddied there. And again, not that we here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Nathan and I are both not saying Christians, you know, Christianity is an invitation to quietism and total no. withdrawal from from the public. I mean, that absolutely not. We we want Christians faithful presences in all sectors of society. So we're not saying that. Well, yeah, so like all right, I'm, this is this is rough coming into my mind here, so help me flesh this out. There if you think of very crudely the, the faithful Christian presence in the in a faithful um church. I'm using a broad sense of church there like Christians in culture. Um and you think of that as a tool. It's a like a, a hammer is a terrible rake, but it's a great hammer. So use it for a hammer, don't use it for a rake, right? And so when I think of the church, like, is there a sense in which what Jesus is calling us to at the point in which you try some types of cultural influence, you're then using your hammer as a rake and you would build way better right. things if you left used your hammer as a hammer. That's what I'm asking about. Like, so what is it that we're supposed to be doing? So there's that part of it. And then there's the recognition that the the church's influence in in the way in which we think about influence right now is small. Um, think I was having this thought while having a conversation with some young friends a week or two ago. Think of a game of tug of war. A game of tug of war is only interesting if both people are about the same size. And if one is really tiny and one is really big, I mean it's funny, but it's not a good game of tug of war. And as far as cultural influence goes, the church is the tiny one on the end of the rope here. You, the church doesn't have the moral weight, gravitas, or influence, or respect in order to legitimately pull culture in the direction of what the church is. Like, it just isn't a big enough nope, or a respected enough of a thing. And so all this language about culture war and finding culture and pushing back against culture is ridiculous if you thought like, oh, like, let's just send everybody to um, Ukraine to fight Russia. No training, just jump in there. You're not equipped for that. You're bit not big enough, fast enough, right. strong enough, and don't know enough about what's going on in order to change the outcome of that. But it, it seems like we we have this idea that when it comes to culture, like we all know exactly what should happen and we're all exactly equipped and we have everything we need and we've thought this out and there is a strategy and a mission and a plan. So some of it is just like, I see these massive asymmetries that I think are actually there. Maybe I'm reading the world wrong, but it seems like we're talking about it in the church as if it's a if it's symmetrical warfare and it doesn't seem like it is. So at what point do you say, I'm five one, I'm not going to be the basketball center. I'm going to run cross country. You know, you know, like, so what, how does the church pick and choose its battles well here and do the thing that it's actually built to do? I rest my case. Yeah. And I my think question, we anyway. have to, 
Well, we've got to come down really clear here on what our expectations are because a lot of so reshape culture or engage culture in in some to what end? So a lot of thoughts on winning a culture war, I think, are predicated on what I would call a false eschatology. And that might sound, well, it might sound theologically abstract, but it actually isn't. It just means you're jumping the gun a little bit because we as Christians are awaiting the return of our king. So I think, so the integralists, just to, and by the way, that, that term just, some people would have a real problem with the way that term has been reappropriated. I'm not going to go into the, you know, the, the thicket of footnote, <laughs> footnote territory here. But the, those, those people right now, Saurabh Amari and others, who are a tiny, tiny little minority, but who do have kind of a theocratic vision for the Catholic Church, by the way, they, I think, I'm going to say something that might shock some of you listeners here. There's a kernel of truth in their aspirations and their ambitions because after all yes yes i'm going to say i would agree with you before you can before you complete your sentence go ahead well i mean absolutely because ultimately who is victorious over all who conquered sin and death and the grave that is christ our lord who is king of kings christ our lord and not only that we are his noble subjects as christians and our destiny is to not not only just to not just to sit back passively but to reign with him eternally mm-hmm. all right that's an absolutely marvelous and magnificent destiny now is that for this world right now no it's not we're not there yet part of so part of by the way and this is part of why this is a little side note this is part of why the spiritual disciplines and becoming a Christ-like person is of the utmost and crucial importance so that you can handle that level of power. You know, we think about that level of cosmic power. I mean, power makes us all pretty nervous for the most part, and it should, right? Because now power itself is not, not, power can be a absolutely wonderful thing, right? But we just see so much abuse of power, and we see the ways in which this corrupts people's hearts and minds, and it makes us squeamish. So the work of sanctification, the work of a lifetime, is bringing ourselves under control so that we can handle the kind of power Christ intends to give us. But if we jump the gun and we, and we start to look at this world in those, kind, in those terms, I think we're, 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 being, we're making a mistake. This world is is fallen. This world is passing away. And this is not our kingdom. Ours is the kingdom of God. So positive influence, absolutely. Creation mandate, absolutely. Following Jesus and serving neighbor, God and neighbor in all of our spheres, absolutely. But trying to gain that kind of control here and now is a serious mistake. Well, and so, all right we've dug ourselves in this hole. Let's keep going. Um, yeah. So when I go up to Minnesota here in a few days, um, actually, but I'll be there by the time this comes out there, there's, a, I want to talk some about like, there's a very interesting thing theme throughout the new Testament is like, when you suffer, 
your response to that is to live holy lives. Right. Like, like you know, it's just like, that's so obviously That's a mark true. of God's people. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. You will suffer and your response is to live holy lives that glorify God. Okay. What's the next step? Like that, that, that's it. And like, who do we vote for? It doesn't say like, you know, it's, it's just a sense of like, you live your lives as a testimony to the coming kingdom and your message and your means have to be commensurate. The end. Uh, let's, let, let me meddle for a second since, since you brought this up, you know, you suffer, therefore you scream and complain about your religious rights, which are great when you have them. This, Right, which are so great when you have them, but this is where our friend Oz Guinness has has often said this: Christians really have no business, you know, screaming themselves hoarse about their quote rights. And again, am I saying that we should be committed to total political inaction? No, absolutely not. We contend earnestly and honestly, but we also. Again, and I've said this before in the past. I said this in a lecture I did on on critical theory, and this made some people mad. But we we don't sacrifice our convictions on the altar of political expediency. So right. the only way, yeah, to gain to 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 gain the upper hand in terms of religious rights is to it comes through ethical compromise. Then the price is too high. We don't do it, and we suffer well. That's that's part of what I, I keep coming back to. This that's what I mean by if we want. If we want to, quote, win, we have to learn to lose well. Well, so, yeah. Uh, mm, all right, let me try to walk through that and see. So, like, so it's it's losing well in the category of using a hammer as a rake. It's not losing yes. in terms of using the hammer as a hammer. So, for me, it's just a total refocus back to what the Gospels actually say and the church is way better at stuff than it thinks it is if it's not distracted. So way like, better. Yeah. So this is my weird agitated optimism in the midst we of all this. We don't need cultural validation. That's that's part of what gets on my nerves here. We don't need the affirmation of secular elites. We don't need all of these these different forms of validation. We have all the validation, all the resources, all the majesty, all the glory that we need. We don't there need to be relevant in that way. Yep. And now yeah, we're going to take up I our offering and have is, our final hymn. Thank you for that sermon. Yeah, well, I mean, this, so this 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 hankering after that has had, I think that the intentions behind it are often good ones. It's an earnest desire to be persuasive. But what ends up happening a lot of the time is that we end up being more, we go down the road more of cultural accommodation rather than persuasion. True persuasion involves intellectual honesty. So manipulation mm -hmm. is 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 a, is a species of rhetoric, basically, and it can be extremely effective. Yeah, you can if you have a quote influencer trying to sell a certain skin product, and this influencer is absolutely gorgeous. You see only these perfectly curated shots of this of them traipsing through the Coachella Music Festival in Los Angeles or something like that, guess what? People are going to buy that skin product regardless of whether it's good or not. Same thing applies with fitness influencers. They could sell you the stupidest product you've ever seen in your life, but if you know they're, they're really shredded and jacked looking, people will, people will do it. But see, that's, that's rhetoric and manipulation. And the same way, you can dress up a church and make it you know 
<laughs> try to make it as 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 culturally relevant as possible. I'm not saying anything new here. And I mean, it can it can gain you a certain hearing for a time. But again, that time is quickly passing, though. Well, yeah. And so because, is it is it is there is there an analogous yeah. thing here? So like you think of um, Jesus fasting in the desert and his temptation and Satan taking him up onto the temple. Um, which my kids always ask, like, did they have ladders then? Because how did they do that? Okay, that's not a question I ever had in that passage, but they got on top of the temple <laughs> one way or the other. Anyway, so like I offer you like dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. That's a, like that's he's offering him power, but the problem is, is he's yep. a cosmic ruler, not an earthly ruler. So like it sounds great, but the offer is kind of silly when you look at it compared to what he actually is. So I guess that's the like how do you how do you how do we lean into that and we're going through a time of cultural purification i think when excess is being burned off and things that were silly and hollow are are disappearing right. and that can be good but it's kind of like i was saying to some guys the other day or like so i'm saying this to to you listening now if you own personal property say a car maybe even a house a piece of land personal property is not a guarantee for a disciple of jesus if you have it be thankful for it that's great, but it is not necessary for your faith to have stuff. If you have Christian community, I think Bonhoeffer says this, fall on your knees daily and thank God, because that's not a guarantee. If you have it, that's great, mm -hmm. but your faith is not dependent on it. And so when you start to just peel down the layers of like, what is the core minimum of what needs to be functioning in reality in order for my faith to be vibrant and for God to use me? The list is way smaller in the cultural entanglements than most of us think. So I think that's part of like the discipled and disciplined mind is getting back to saying, I have my daily bread and everything else that I dream of is excessive and can be good, but I dare not root my faith in these ephemeral um, foundations and substructures around me. So just a thought. Yeah, we have. Well, we have to, th and we have to ask ourselves now the question, where is your treasure? So this is a moment where cultural Christianity, Nathan and I have made this argument before on the podcast, but cultural Christianity is dying on the vine in the United States. And that is something that is good. It's well, not going to come without you, you can't You can't pains, influence but, culture if you're not different enough from culture for somebody becoming one of what you are to actually look different. Exactly. Right. And so if you, again, the church has all she needs. She doesn't need, you know, fog machines and music to match the or level Nathan of volume and in the culture. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not, I'm not calling for a halt on all creative efforts in the church at all, but I'm saying the frantic struggle to try to either match the culture around us or to try to find some way to seduce them into coming to church has to stop. That's yeah. not the way. Well, and you've heard me say before that I think there's a fine line between relevant and ridiculous. And it seems that in right. the culture changing aspect and elements, and maybe some of this is gone, I don't know, but it felt like 10 years ago, there was a high degree of trying to find the cultural inroads um, taking kind of the be all things to all people way out of context of what that means to say. Um, but when the church does that, it's usually like three years behind where culture actually is. So 
Like your right. Beanie Baby program isn't probably going to work anymore. Um, there, I don't think there ever was one of those. I'm just using that as like a fad that came and passed. Um, so the mm-hmm. faddish nature of these things, um, I think most people see right through that. I do too. So I think, you know, the, the idea of, you know, have, have we, have we lost the culture war? Yeah, but we don't, we don't need to worry about winning the culture war. Well, it's only bad if you were supposed to be fighting it. Right. And again, I'm aware that for, for some of our listeners, this might be challenging or even distressing. So it's, it's worth, let's look at just for a, for a brief minute, let's let's take a little historic. Let's just take a historical pause here. So, where does some of this mindset come from? And again, you can't get away from history. Americans don't like history. <laughs> we, we are we are a thoroughly thoroughly anti traditional, anti historical culture in most of our ways. That's part of what makes us so innovative, but it's also part of what blindsides us and makes us so tone deaf. But what happened? What what I mean? What contributes the, to this way of, of of looking at the world? So, I do think that a helpful book here is Craig M. Gay's "The Way of the Modern World," but he's drawing on somebody else we've talked about before, Mark Knoll, mm-hmm. historian of evangelicalism. Really helpful. But so Craig Gay and Mark Knoll both talk about the fact that one of the negative offshoots of conservative evangelicalism down the ages is that they early on embraced a kind of common sense philosophy. And this, if you're, if you're taking notes, this comes from the Scottish enlightenment. If you actually go into the history of the enlightenment, it's the the question is not the enlightenment per se, but which, which enlightenment, the radical enlightenment, the moral enlightenment, the common, you know, sort of, this is, this, this came to be known as the common sense sort of approach. It came, it's an outgrowth of the Scottish Enlightenment. But the thinking was basically, and this is, you got to think about America and it's early, it's in, in its inception as a nation. It's looking for political stability. And so some of the, the Puritan emphasis, some of that classical, classical reformed emphasis on human incapacity in the face of sin, so depravity, didn't lend itself too well to political <laughs> kind of stability and, you know, moving the needle forward there. So the Scottish Enlightenment kind of tried to, to to give you a little bit more of a moderate position where it said, well, no, human beings basically are morally sensible. It's This is something that's universal. Everybody has access to it. So people, people can draw these good moral insights in, you know, on their own, you know, of their own strength, and they can do that. They have access to that. This is something that we can we can have consensus on good morality. Now, I'm putting I'm painting this in very broad terms, but one of the negative outgrowths of this, says Craig M. Gay, is that evangelicals began to think more and more that spiritual insight was something that just everybody had had could just that they could take for granted. Mm-hmm. Everybody had it. So, what happens now to the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, and but so you see this very help, clearly. Help me but, chronologically, real quick. But think you about, have you, you yeah. have that enlightenment after significant revi- religious revival, right? So, is the Scottish Enlightenment kind of assuming a Christianized morality for the culture that sets them up to have that view? 
Kind of. I'm not sure I understand your question though. So let's, I, let's... I'm saying I'm saying what is there a sense in which when the when the Scottish Enlightenment was happening, and most Enlightenments do follow a, a Christendom model of some sort, that mm-hmm. there's a subconscious collective understanding about what the good is and what is morally right that kind of anesthetizes yes. people into thinking that most people can figure out what is good. Is that I think yes. that's what I think that's the argument you're making. Yes, but then when that when that notion that we all have that that idea of what the good is gets contested or there are competing ideas of what the good is, then you have a real problem and then you begin to see the deficit in that view. So then when you have evangelicals rallying behind cultural accommodations of various kinds to, tr- to quote, reach the culture or to, quote, be evangelistic, you can see what's happening. You're starting to, you're, t- you're taking a profoundly this-worldly view of your faith and of, of the way the gospel works. And that's when you start to drift into the territory of, well, you know, really cultural influence in the end, we need political power. We need the right people in office because again, we, we want to reach the culture, but we want to redeem the culture. And you have all of this language, which is, which brings us back full circle to the question at the beginning. Yes. But what kind of a world are you living in? This is a fallen world. Is this the place where you are meant to be reigning forever with God? And are your treasures this worldly or are they spiritual treasures? If they're spiritual treasures, this is a gift. This is a, this, these are the kinds of insights that come from above, from the Holy Spirit. If you see your treasure in those terms. But the world, of course, is going to see those kind that kind of approach as absolute ridiculousness and foolishness. It's always been like that. So yeah. there, there's a little bit of the tension, I think, that erupts. Where, where is your treasure? Is it here? Or is it with Christ, his kingdom, and the world to come? Well, let, me, let me give you two things that might fit into this. So um, I'm just looking here quickly. Here's a CNBC poll. More than two-thirds, 68% of U.S. respondents said they think today's children will be financially worse off as adults than their parents, which is up from 60% in 2019. So you have over two-thirds of people think that the next generation is going to be worse off financially than they are. Okay. As a Christian, though, our finance is the most important thing. Can no, you have a content life? And make, yeah, so, so it's like, I, I like what you're pointing out there it, it, and what I think we're collectively trying to say gets into that theme of like, how do we decide what the appropriate measures are for success? And so you were asking earlier, like, what is our point here? Well, it's our, live our lives to the glory of God and for our neighbor's good. Like, you know, um, to experience and participate in the goodness that God creates worship and spirit and truth. Like, it's it's not ambiguous what it is that we're supposed to be doing. It's just not measurable with the metrics that everybody around right. us wants to use to measure success. And I, I I could hear people being frustrated with us listening to what we're saying here of like that's a defeatist or it's a uh, Benedict option with you know withdrawal kind. And it's not that. It's um. It's, it's seeing like, the world as it actually is. This is this is getting in touch with reality. I mean, I know economics is at the top of the food chain as as for how we define value here and now in this world, and it's at the top of the food chain in terms of you know 
ration, you know, this is, this is the rational lens. Well, that's if you only translate rational as self-interest, which I yeah, don't, oh, by the okay. way. So this is also why our podcast will never be massively popular because the popular route would go in here, 10 things you can do to prepare yourself and your family for the upcoming cultural war and upheaval, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blank. And there are plenty of things to do. Think of, think of what happened. I'm thinking of Naaman, the leper. You remember Naaman? So he's the commander of the yeah, Syrian oh, yeah. army. He gets, he has a skin disease that can't be solved. He has a captured servant girl from Israel. And the servant girl says to Naaman's wife, you know, we have pretty great prophet. And there's a God in Israel who could take care of this. So Naaman gets, you know, begrudgingly, maybe, um, well, he gets permission from, from the ruler of Syria to go. He meets up with the prophet. And the prophet says, sends I want bribes. you bribes. Yeah, sends all <laughs> kinds of money and yeah, the whole like shebang. And the prophet says, nah, I don't want any of your stuff. Um, go dip yourself in the river. And, won't even and go meet with him. <laughs> one, doesn't even go out to meet him. Yeah. So, I mean, so here's somebody who's loaded with wealth, loaded with prestige, and the faithful prophet doesn't even go out to meet him. Um, and in that, he says, I want you to go, you know, do this thing, dunk yourself in the river. And Naaman essentially leaves in a fit because he wanted to have to do something great in order to, you know, actually, he wanted some wealth transfer, some honor, some kind of other thing. Elijah doesn't even come out to meet him, says, go dunk yourself in the river. And Naaman's like, we've got better rivers in Syria than the Jordan. So why would I do this? And then one of um, Naaman's servants says, look, if he asked you to do something great, you would do whatever. But if he asks you to do something simple, that's offensive to you. But why don't you just go do it? And so Naaman does go and do it, and he is healed by God. Um, and so that puts all of the emphasis on God who's doing the doing. It wasn't mm -hmm. prestige. It wasn't money. It wasn't political power, authority, or anything. It was the simple act of obedience and the power of God that changed the outcome of the structure of Naaman's future worship. So we're going to end this podcast on saying the culture war is dead by saying, here's what you should do. You should daily worship the Lord in spirit and truth and ask him what he wants mm -hmm. you to do. And then you should go to church and gather with other like-minded believers and worship the Lord in spirit and truth and ask him what he wants you to do collectively. That's, yeah. that's the modern equivalent of go dunk yourself in a river. Like super simple, but it honors the God factor. It annihilates all of the prestige you know, honor the political influence, the money, the treasure. And it just puts it back on saying, God's the one who's running the show and I will be faithful to do the thing that he asked me to do. Now, when you do that, he might have you do something that's political. He might have you do something that's an activistic. He might have you. So it's all possible. It's all on the books, but you're doing that then out of discipleship, not out of strategy. And you're doing it out of a proper you know, recognition of who's running the world and not out of fear. And that is a totally different creature um that you become than the modern fear game that everybody else is playing so it it sounds simplistic but it is not simple well and to the inevitable question that some people have, have asked me this before when i speak along these lines is it enough love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself do that to the utmost of your abilities with the empowered by Christ's Holy Spirit and with the help of fellow brothers and sisters in your church, worshiping together in spirit and truth, do that. It's enough. It's more than enough. Yeah, because the enough That's all you the, need to do. Because the amount isn't coming from us. Exactly.
you're serving, you are serving the living God. You know, we're at a moment, Nathan, where we're, many of us are just going to have to face the question, do I believe in God or not? Do I really think Jesus is Lord? Or and was does God I, know what's and good? You know what? And in no way am I pointing an accusing finger. I'm just asking a searching question, and maybe that is an alarming question for you. It's worth pondering that. Maybe you were putting too much stock in your property. Maybe you were putting too much stock in politics. Maybe you were putting too much stock in the culture war or in a, a vision or a model of cultural influence that turns out to be way more secular than it is Christian. That's okay, but have the honesty to face that question and to answer it. I think that's so important for so many of us because we're just at a juncture where we're going to have to face the question, do I really believe this is true? Is Christ Lord? That, you know, let's just leave you with the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? If this has been a really intense podcast for you, or if this has been one that's really stirred you up, then ponder on that question. I'm just making a suggestion to he- to you here. Not I'm speaking as a fellow pilgrim, not speaking as some, you know, long bearded sage on a mountaintop. Although Nathan does look like a long bearded sage, working he's not on, on a mountaintop, as far as I know. He's working on it. But thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for being such an awesome listenership who lets us talk about stuff like this where (laughs) I can think of many venues where we would, Nathan Nathan and I would be making a lot of people really squeamish, a lot of inviting parties, but we're very grateful for the fact that you not only listen, but think about it and engage with us and, and ask lots of good questions. If you're in the Minnesota area, just one more plug, Nathan will be there. Remind us, Nathan, again, where, where you're yep. at. So the Brainerd Bemidji area, so north of the Twin Cities. But we should also say that if, is the thing you're doing in Chicago this weekend, is that open to the public or is that a different? It is. Yes. So proof or if you're for in the Chicago, there you conference go. in Chicago this, this Saturday. So if, if you're in Chicago, area would love to to see some of you there and there i'll be joined by a number of other great speakers a friend of ours brandon cleaver oh really great Brittany, yeah brandon cleaver Brittany brown alex McElroy, who is the awesome mastermind behind the whole conference i believe this is the it's fourth year in a row so he'll be speaking as well but yes if you're in the chicago area and are interested proof for the truth conference love to see you on saturday yeah, and you can get more details but, on all of that on our social media channels or shoot us an in, uh, email at info at toltogether.com and we'll make sure you have the information you need for that. But you've but, been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.